You're listening to Popcorn Ronin with Roger and Vince. Every two weeks, they give their thoughts on movies, TV, and anime. On Popcorn World, and we're going to do something a little bit different. We're not going to actually discuss movies. We're going to discuss a few documentaries, like we said last on the last episode. I know that both Vince and I are fans of documentaries, especially if they're well done. Um, not that anybody enjoys crappy documentaries, but my <laughs> point on the subject. Well, there is that. Uh, it's just that if if a documentary is really gripping can be just as enjoying if not more so than a movie especially because of the fact that they're well i shouldn't say all of them but some of them are rooted in truth the one of the ones that we're talking about who get your tinfoil hats on (laughs) (laughs) but we're going to tackle um four different ones that we recently watched and if there's time we'll actually discuss another one recently i the wife and i have been watching a mess of really really interesting um, documentaries. One of the ones most notable that we're actually not going to discuss on this episode, but I would urge you all to check out is the one on J.D. Salinger, who wrote The Catcher in the Rye. It was absolutely phenomenal, and it really gives you a whole different insight into the man and into his work, especially considering his follow-up books are now going to be coming out now that he's passed away. So it's uh, it was a very, very good documentary. Now that said, we are going to be tackling, like I said, four different ones. And we'll start off with one of the ones that I had told you that you should watch. More so just because of how cool it was. Not necessarily that it was super interesting to, to know all of the stuff. But it's on Drew Struzan. And... It's a fantastic documentary of a man who has shaped how we see movies because very often the first interactions are one of the most powerful identifying interactions that you have with a movie is with the movie poster. And Drew Struzan is the man who did the artwork for Back to the Future, for the Indiana Jones movies, for Star Wars, for Harry Potter. He's the one that does that amazingly realistic art form that includes a variety of different mediums that he kind of blends together to create these absolutely insane movie posters. I was fascinated by this. Yeah. Because for years, you know, looking back, yeah, a lot of my favorite movie posters, you know, thinking back, all had a similar style. And I always just assumed, you know, that was the style Hollywood yeah. used at the time. I didn't realize it was all the same guy. Some of it I recognize, but I didn't realize just how many he had done. And it was interesting to watch because they, they spoke to him a lot and 
though he's not the most engaging on the screen, <laughs> he is still very interesting because of the passion that he has for his craft and what he puts into it and how down to earth he is. I mean, this man has worked with, with Spielberg, with Lucas. He's done all of these fantastic things and yet he understands that it's a paycheck. So he has done posters for movies that were actually absolute crap. As they said, the movie often the poster was better than the movie. And this is very, <laughs> very true. Thomas Jane and the masters of the universe poster was oh, hilarious. Yeah. It was fantastic. That, that was the movie that taught a young Vince about disappointment. <laughs> <laughs> Who was it that was looking at it saying, I still want to see this movie. That was Thomas Jane. Was it? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but yeah, it's see, Many, many years ago, um, before actually my son was born, would have been in, I think, 94, 95, I worked at a blockbuster. And when movie posters would come in, if we weren't using them, because I was like, I was assistant manager, so I could get my hands on them pretty fast because manager doesn't give a rat's ass. She's got bigger fish to fry, other things to do. So it was like, I would take care of it. And so if... If it was a movie poster that we weren't going to put up, then I would kind of roll it aside <laughs> and take it home. <laughs> if it was a particularly good movie poster, not all the time, but if I could get away with it, screw it. I'm taking it home too. I don't care because <laughs> I want it. And like the kids' rooms were plastered with movie posters for all the kids shows and whatnot. And then as my, my eldest got older, he had adventure shows and, and, and things like that. And like, I, I still have the movie poster for Schindler's list when it first came out and, and all kinds of amazing movie posters. And they're actually, I still have them in the tubes and they're still downstairs. We're waiting for the day that we finish our basement. We're going to put a games room slash little kind of put a nice, large screen down there and everything and we want to frame some of the nicest posters that we have and put them up because again the posters do it's not it's not just a poster it's still art especially when you have something like this that in the blink of an eye can take you back to the moment when you saw that film yeah, watching the documentary, I was like, man, now I want to watch Back to the Future again. Oh, yeah. Oh, the thing. Oh, I haven't seen the thing in years. I have to watch that. And it, it's You're so right. And the way he was able to portray, like, calling it photorealistic is almost a disservice. <laughs> like, it's better than photorealistic in some cases. The way how he says he always wants to portray the characters in their most ideal way possible, which, you know, with – lighting and you know any number of things involved sometimes you can't quite get on a set or what have you but you can paint it however you want and like it was so great when when they kept talking to Harrison Ford <laughs> and Harrison Ford realized you know his career might not be where it is if not for the movie posters that were so fantastic and when you're talking about you know how humble he is after what 20 30 years he finally actually yeah. met Harrison and it was just, hi, how you doing? Nice to meet you. Nice yeah. to finally see you. All right. Well, <laughs> neither one of those two guys are very engaging no. in real life. So, I mean, have you ever seen interviews with Harrison Ford? Not just like a few minutes on like Conan or something, but when he does long interviews. Oh, my God. It's like De Niro. Oh, my God. It's painful to watch those guys because you would think they're engaging and full of life like their characters. 
not at all. So that's why the meeting between this guy, Harrison and Drew, wow, yeah, that was <laughs> something else. But it's true. The what blew me away is that in in a lot of cases, like he didn't have photos to go off of for like that looked exactly like what it was that he wanted. He posed himself and then just did the artwork for the faces and bodies based on what he knew they looked like and with some obviously some reference material, but not exactly the same pose. That's insane. Cause like again, I, I live with an artist and my wife does portraiture. And she does um, like with oil and watercolor and everything else. But the ones that are the most amazing are the ones that she does using charcoal. And what she does is she puts shavings on uh, a piece of paper and then creates this black cloud and then erases the face from it and then uses pencil and does all the work and all of the fine details. And so you get this this face that you see come to life in reverse essentially. And it always blows my mind that it's the same freaking thing that's that's what the person looks like but the thing is is that she's doing it exactly like what the picture is so if there's a shadow across the face on that side yes she can work with it and remove it and stuff like that but this guy here takes it to a whole other level and to be able to pose them how he wants do whatever he wants and all that and still it's it's them it's 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 unbelievable and then how he does all of his well that's what he became known for the groupings of all the major people kind of and their relationship to the main character and how their importance in the movie and and stuff like that like oh my god you know if you had asked me how yeah those posters were, were made up with I wouldn't have thought it was just one guy just straight up drawing it on a canvas. I would have thought it was individual art pieces, you know, composited together perfectly. Yeah, it it was composited together perfectly, but all in the dude's head. (laughs) It's funny, too, because they talk about how Photoshop has killed movie posters, which is very... Very that was true. the most depressing thing. Like yeah. I was, I was upset for days after I watched the movie. But it's true. We've seen that with movie posters for how long now? That mm-hmm. they're all this freaking same, and you have the same poses, and you know the the back to back characters. If it's a couple, or the 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 guy looking over his shoulder, or the close up face, and it's they they all look the same. And like here, you had something that was so unique. When do you look at the? posters for back to the future and you see michael j fox with the two lines of fire and looking at his watch like that sticks in your head forever i because i remember seeing back to the future when it came out that came out in 85 so i was still i was a teen at that point i remember seeing it and that freaking poster whenever i think of the show i don't think of a scene in the movie i think of that poster Jesus Christ, that's that's telling of how important that art is. Same with the um, the Indiana Jones one, the Temple of Doom especially, which they, they showed a lot during the show. That poster there was, for the longest time, you asked me to describe Harrison Ford, that's it, <laughs> the, that movie poster. And, uh, and I love the, uh, when you look at the process of how he puts it together, because it's not just airbrushing and it's not just, you know, 
painting or whatever. There's uh, there's fine line with pencils. There's all kinds of stuff. The the it's just, <laughs> it's hard to put into words, especially when there was the that they were talking about the when they redid the Star Wars and they wanted the posters and he did them all and then they were like he didn't get to do them at the same time either <laughs> so he had to work from memory to make it so that they all fit and when you put the three together it's it's mind-boggling how amazing it is yeah one of my favorite parts of this documentary is when they were talking to Guillermo del Toro you know big right. surprise <laughs> but i thought it was hilarious that the way i would act if i were to ever meet Guillermo del Toro or Steven Spielberg or anybody is the way he acted yeah. when he met Drew Struzan. <laughs> and then they showed off that, f- again, fantastic work he did for the two Hellboy films, yeah. and Pan's Labyrinth. And I've never seen that artwork before for Pan's Labyrinth, and that was fantastic. Oh, my God. Yeah, but you know and, why now? Huh? You know why now? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and how, at least for the first Hellboy, you know, they commissioned it and he did it and the studio decided you know they weren't going to use that artwork they were going to use the photoshop art so del toro paid like i think he was like 50 grand out of his pocket just so that he could have the poster so that the poster would exist so when it came back around to hellboy 2 and later pan's labyrinth he knew going in that it wasn't going to be used for the movie but he didn't care because now he has his own like little personal collection of drew struzan art based on his movies and it's that was I, crazy. Man. <laughs> that that was really, really it, it, like hats off to him to have that much respect for what the man does to to commission it just for himself. That was that was great. So anyways, this is it very if you were a lover of movies, this is something that I, I strongly encourage people to watch. Uh, it was it's again, it's not something that's gonna grip you throughout and be like, you know, anything that's that's well, like some of the other ones we're going to talk about, but it was so interesting. And again, as someone who just has this love affair with movies and with the posters, this was, this was very, very cool. So make sure to check it out. It is on Netflix. So very easy to get a hold of. Let's go to one of yours now. Which one do you want to tackle first? Um, let's start with room 237. Okay. All right. Room 237 is a documentary explaining I don't even want to say explaining, but <laughs> expanding upon various theories surrounding Stanley Kubrick's Shining film. And man, is it nuts. I, I'll start off by even saying I don't feel it's a terribly well-made documentary. No, I mean, you, you have all these voiceovers from people and, you know, in a documentary, you, you intersperse clips of what you're talking about with the clips of the people talking. Well, this all of the so-called experts, if you will, are just voices over the movie clips. And since they don't have that much to work with, you're just seeing the same movie clips over and over again. Like, how many times did we see that scene from Eyes Wide Shut of Tom Cruise oh walking into the movie God. theater? It must have been 15 times over the course of this but film. They had clips from other movies, too. Like, there was all kinds of clips. And you're going, like, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, and... Uh, you know, audio quality was pretty suspect. There was even a point where one of the guys is talking and his kid is in the next room, like pitching a fit, going nuts. And he straight up excuses himself, gets up, goes into the other room and then comes back I was without when, a second take. When that came up, 
I looked at my wife and I said, my podcasts are better produced than this. <laughs> but more professional. <laughs> yeah, so the, the actual quality of the documentary is very suspect. However, I still found it very interesting because Stanley Kubrick is one of my favorite filmmakers. He just such an incredible visionary, you know, 2001, Clockwork Orange, Full Metal Jacket, some of my favorite movies across the board. And he always has a tremendous amount of vision and depth in what he puts in. But anytime you do that, you leave yourself o- open to over-interpretation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And we had, I think it was eight different people coming in with their various theories ranging from, you know, the genocide of the Native Americans to the Holocaust in World War II. They brought in one guy to talk about the sexual imagery of the film, and he only had one boner joke to tell. And I don't think he was even there again for the rest of the film. And it's just a a lot of it is obviously coincidental. And it's just somebody taking way too much time and spending way too much attention to where somebody's penis is in the movie. And it's it's goofy. It's ridiculous. But I still find it kind of fun because I can also see how some people would make certain connections with the film because we know that, for example, Stanley Kubrick investigated, you know, the history of the Native Americans in Colorado and all this. And while that might not have been the point of the film, it was definitely an inspiration for some of the imagery he used. And that's what I liked about this, where you can definitely see what Kubrick wasn't necessarily trying to tell us through the film, but where he was drawing inspirations from for a lot of the images he was using. There were a lot of parts that justifiably were were cool and even the parts that were so far out like the apollo stuff <laughs> that, was still was fun hilarious. to listen to it was still fun to listen to the yes. the problem that i had was that the um the audio quality was it was, it was rough. terrible to the point where you are constantly volume up, volume down, volume up, volume down. And then the fact that for a lot of it, you're looking at unrelated material or you're constantly seeing that eyes wide shut stuff and things like that. So that kind of got annoying. But there were definitely some like hidden gems in there that make me want to watch the show again and what what was funny is that i was watching it again i was watching this with my wife the other night and we were both enjoying it when not although she more than i was saying oh come on (laughs) 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 but but the um some of the stuff was quite cool and then when we were talking about it after okay i don't know if somebody just tossed this out or if it's actually proven somewhere but he, if he does, in fact, have a 200 IQ, there quite likely is a lot of stuff in there that we don't know or that he planted. And that is just taking people a hell of a long time to figure out who knows whether or not how much truth there is to, to all of it. But a bored genius, <laughs> 200 IQ, <laughs> is definitely going to put a lot of stuff there that a normal director, quote-unquote, would not necessarily do. Yeah, I, I, I don't know if I, 
if there's, like you said, any documentation proving that. But you can definitely see from not just this, but a lot of his works, he definitely was operating on a different level than a lot of his contemporaries. Yeah. I mean, 2001 is a testament to, the, to that alone. But some of the coolest stuff of this is when they were actually mapping out the hotel. That, and yeah. like they, they were talking about the impossible window in the manager's office. And they showed through you know, the various clips that they were able to create a map of the hotel and it's physically impossible for there to be a window there. And a lot of people, you know, would look at that and go, oh, they just screwed up. You have other people look at that and go, no, there's a meaning to that. Well, there's kind of an in-between if you ask me because, again, we know Kubrick was a very meticulous filmmaker. They showed some some behind-the-scenes footage that – I don't know if it was ever actually put out as a an actual documentary or anything, but uh, Kubrick's daughter actually filmed a lot of behind-the-scenes uh, tape for, uh, while they were filming uh, The Shining. And they showed one scene where he had mapped out every inch of the hedge maze and the path the, the, the characters were going to take and where all the camera shots were going to be. So somebody who is going to take that much care in mapping out a scene is probably also going to notice that there's a window where it's not supposed to be and other things where as the kid's riding his tricycle around and he's literally teleporting between floors in the, in the same shots that's doesn't strike me as a filmmaker screwing something up it strikes me as not necessarily a hidden meaning but a lot of things that just go into the the weird supernatural bits of the film and really expand upon that and just showing that if you're paying attention, you really realize something's not right. But even subconsciously, exactly. it, it has to be very disorienting that you know something's not right there. And that's just pure filmmaking technique to me. See, and that's what I believe it is too. I don't believe that it is something that he put in and that there's this whole meaning behind it. There might be. But I think more so than that, it's just one of those things where he wants to affect how you feel as you're watching the show and it's true when you know there's not supposed to be a window there but you see it in the shot you can't always pinpoint what it is that's off about the room but it kind of puts you on edge you you can't figure it out and that's what i believe he was going after and you see that with like you were saying too when the when the kid is going on his his little tricycle thing and um is going and it's it changes floors kind of thing that's another thing where you you catch it from the corner of your eyes like the top of the windows kind of things like they showed and you are immediately there's a sense of unease like what is it doesn't feel right and that's huge for something that takes place in a hotel where it's not supposed to feel right Mm-hmm. And then they, were, they also did the thing with uh, playing the movie forwards and backwards that was and cool. showing showing how certain things lined up and like, oh, in this in this one frame here, Jack Nicholson has a Hitler mustache. So clear. And again, I, I, I would chalk that up more to coincidence than anything else. But again, I can also see the filmmaking technique where I, I, I don't know if he even went so far as to, to specifically map out, you know, each frame of the film. But there's a certain symmetry to the movie where it, things start off happy and innocent and we know where they end up at the end. And again, I just take that as good filmmaking as the character arcs and the tone of the film lines up that well in so many places. I, that was one of the ones where I do not believe for one moment that anything there was planned. 
except mm-hmm. for maybe the the beginning where you're seeing the the writing over top of the water as the you have the fly through okay that one maybe um but the, the rest of the film i cannot for one moment believe that it was planned but that being said cool as freaking shit that was amazing when you're seeing <laughs> some of the scenes and you're going like oh my god like you you couldn't have planned it better is what goes through your head but again i can't believe that it was but just amazing how creepy and like looks like it was planned very very freaking cool yeah and i the the part that like most blew my mind was when uh the kid danny is it I think yep. it's Danny mm-hmm. is playing in the hallway with his trucks and, you know, they got the weird little hexagons and pattern on the floor or whatever. And then the ball rolls up to him. And then they specifically showed that when the ball rolls up to him and he's looking, the hexagon is like opened up like towards the front of him. And then when they do the quick frame skip to change the angle of the camera, suddenly he's it's the complete opposite. And again, that's one of those things that you could chalk up to a filmmaking mistake. But again, given the pedigree of the director and how everything else was still so perfect, I have to believe it was done on purpose, not for any hidden meaning, but again, for that subconscious feeling of some, you you know, something definitely weird happened in that scene, even if you couldn't put your finger on it. Yeah. All of the things that were continuity issues, I specifically took to be him messing with our minds and just for that sense of an unease. The the thing about that too is that it worked in his favor as a director. <laughs> because if he set off with this idea of doing things like this and then it, during filming doesn't have to worry as much when there are little continuity issues because it all fits in with this general sense of unease like case in point the chair that's behind jack nicholson which in the next shot is no longer there if that was a continuity thing which i highly doubt something that big i doubt it but if it had been it works because again it creates that sense of what the hell am i missing here something's wrong so I mean, he really set himself up to to be a lot lazier <laughs> with <laughs> continuity and still do something better because of it. Yeah. So for all, all those reasons, I ended up actually really enjoying this documentary, despite how the quality issues were and the questionable content of many of the theories. At the end of the viewing, it gave me a better appreciation for the film as a whole, even though it wasn't an actual study of the filmmaking involved in it, seeing how other people were looking at it from different angles and really broadening my horizons of to the film itself really made me enjoy The Shining that much more. And I love the movie to begin with. Yeah. I, there's a few things that I would have liked had they done, um, not the least of which being filmed it better to include the people but also state what their actual qualifications are what who are these people is this somebody that just came out of the theater that you're interviewing you know like i i would like to know who this person is or you know do they teach movies or, or filming or anything like that are they just movie reviewers or are they just freaking hacks with headsets and mic <laughs> like so well, 
What's really funny is, you know, after the movie came out and it was making the rounds, you know, Sundance and whatnot, and the director was being interviewed about it, and you know, they were asking him what his personal thoughts were, and he's like, "I don't believe any of the theories that are in the documentary." <laughs> you know, I have my own view of the movie. I just thought that all this stuff was fascinating and needed to be put together. Yeah. Oh yeah, and and it is one of those too. Like even the freaking Apollo thing is laughable, but the. The proof I can is see there. Them putting that stuff in there on purpose just to mess with people. Exactly. You're going like, well, yeah, it all fits. I don't believe it, but man, it really does fit. It's, you know, it is kind of awkward for you know a six year old kid. How old was he? Six, seven, maybe. You yeah. know, to be wearing an Apollo Eleven sweater twenty some years after the actual moon landing. Okay, it's kind of weird. <laughs> and taken into context, yeah, it's probably just Kubrick messing with people. Yeah. Okay, let's move on now to another one that I had picked, and it was Dear Mr. Watterson. This is one of the ones that caught my attention as soon as I saw it. Uh, I shouldn't say saw it, but I, I, I read about it and whatnot. It was actually not that well-reviewed overall. The Hell, the Metacritic score for it is 54. It's not generally thought of that highly, but it did, you know, it still was shown at a whole bunch of different places. And for people who weren't in the know, which would be very surprising, Mr. Watterson, of course, is the creator of Calvin and Hobbes. So this is a documentary speaking about the impact of Calvin and Hobbes on the world. <laughs> because it's known <laughs> everywhere. This, the, the, the documentary, the guy who did this, uh, Joel Allen Schroeder, he didn't actually, obviously, get to speak to... Uh, Bill Watterson, but that's because Watterson is kind of like, again, going back to Salinger or Recluse. He doesn't want to have anything to do with anybody else, which worked with the documentary and what it was that he wanted to do, what Joel wanted to do. It was more about the characters, more about the strip and what it has meant to so many other people. And he speaks to a lot of other cartoonists who came after or who worked at the same time as Watterson and what the impact of Calvin and Hobbes was on their strips as well. So in the context of of all that, you don't need to have Watterson interviewed. Would it have helped? It might have. It would have certainly been a little bit more interesting at points, but this still worked for what it is. This is one of those documentaries where I would tell people, watch it if you are a huge fan of Calvin and Hobbes. Everybody knows Calvin and Hobbes. Everybody likes Calvin and Hobbes, as they say here too. <laughs> but not everybody really loves Calvin and Hobbes. And as would happen, well, I do. I remember reading all of these when they were coming out in the papers. I remember getting the books we still have several of the books here i actually got my kids to read them later on so calvin and Hobbes is one of those things that i routinely will go back and read through the strips i man we were drooling over that three book set <laughs> i was telling my wife my god i would love to have that and she said i was thinking the same thing <laughs> and i was saying it probably cost a small fortune and gotta love my wife she says you know what it's worth it <laughs> and she's right so on amazon <laughs> yeah find it see if it's there while we're talking um but anyways so this is something where 
he speaks to a lot of other creators. He also goes to the town where Watterson lived, which is what the town that Calvin lives in is kind of modeled after. He does some research into some strips that that Watterson worked on before Calvin and Hobbes. And that stuff was really not successful. He was actually rejected by the papers quite a bit beforehand um, because the stuff just didn't have that, you know, that click. Whereas Calvin and Hobbes clicked immediately. And a large part of that is not just because of the appeal of a strip with kids that we can a kid that we can somewhat relate to because peanuts did that as well it's because of everything else that watterson brought to that strip it wasn't just about a smart ass six-year-old with an imaginary friend it was a strip that tossed in political stuff theology that put in all kinds of philosophical debates watterson was a brilliant writer and what I loved, and they, they showed one of the quotes, and I wish I had it here that I could read it word for word, but it was that, you know, there's just as much value in comics as there is in any other form of literature. And they talk about that during the, the, the documentary as well, when they were talking to the librarian in the town where, I, I believe, no, it wasn't the librarian, it's the curator for the cartoon uh, museum that they have the cartoonist strip museum, which dude, I would love to see that This was <laughs> awesome. But she was saying like, people have this, this opinion that art is okay. And literature is okay. But the moment you combine them together into a comic, no, that's lowbrow humor and low art and nothing could be further from the truth. Well, you see, it's pretty interesting. And uh, as a quick aside, the complete Calvin and Hobbes hardcover box set is listed for $175 and Amazon has it for 88 bucks. Dude, that is so worth it. <laughs> but it's really interesting that uh, I have a much different view on this now than I did, you know, even a, a year ago. I mean, first of all, Calvin and Hobbes, like I was the perfect age yeah. for Calvin and Hobbes. Like I grew and character. up with Calvin. <laughs> and like just as uh, Watterson retired, it was right about when I was getting to that age where I'm like, okay, I probably – want to be stopping reading the you know the sunday comics so it was it was perfectly and calvin was very much me you know very active imagination and, and all that stuff but it's so interesting because uh when we talked about our comic podcast i went to a jack kirby panel at a convention we had here and they were talking about how the industry of comics was very different back in the 50s and 60s when kirby was really making his big impact in the industry and that Anybody working in the actual comic books, you know, the Marvel, the DC stuff, didn't want to be there. They were just there until they could get a job in the newspapers because that was seen as the, the more respected form of the art. Because we were talking here and they were showing off you know, Little Nemo and, you know, a lot of that fantastic stuff from back in the 30s and 40s in the newspapers that is just incomparable to anything you'd see today. That's where everybody wanted to be at the time. And... It wasn't until you had a few people like Jack Kirby, Al Plastino, uh, Jim Steranko, who really saw what the comic books offered as a medium when that aspect started to grow. And how you look at it today and 
everything has dramatically shifted and that newspaper comic strips are widely ignored almost and majority of cartoonists and you know sequential artists their ultimate goal is to now get into the comic book industry it it taken from that point of view i found that really amazing yeah and it's funny because and that you say that too because i i never read comics in papers anymore I, we don't, I don't even, even think they print them in my paper anymore well we actually for a little while we had a paper coming and uh, and then we actually stopped the the subscription because we read all our news online now i i i have mm-hmm. news readers on my ipad that bring all of the news that i i want without all the junk that i don't want and that displays it beautifully and of course it's interactive because there's videos and all kinds of other stuff too. So I don't even read them. And it was such a large part of my life for the longest time. And I'm not talking up like just little kid fantasies of, I want to be a cop when I grow up for the longest time, I was going to become a cartoonist quite seriously. And I had, and again, this was up until in my mid teens, I changed my mind. Like we're talking towards, grade 10 or so great actually i think as far as 11 because up until then i was still showing people all of the stuff that i was drawing at school to obviously to get that little ego rush from people saying hey that's awesome because <laughs> when you're a kid <laughs> you need that um, but my walls were plastered with not just art that i had done but also strips that i cut out of the paper if it was a really well drawn or good strip it was on my wall and i had walls full of like the same artists the same strips kind of like one after another and then i would keep them in books as well we saw that here too where he had some of them i had the same thing i had a bunch of those and i can remember when there used to be the sunday leaflets inside that had the bigger ones and whatnot and in the same way that they talked about there in our family it was Everyone passed one to each other because they came apart kind of thing. They were folded together. And then once you were done yours, you handed them off and you got the next ones kind of thing. Because for the longest time, you'd get like three pages folded together. And then it went down to two and then eventually just one. And then boom, you never saw them again after that. So, I mean, for years, that was huge in my life. Now, pff, I, 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 I couldn't tell you what is printed now. But, like, I mean, we still obviously keep up with the web comics, which is where the trend has gone. And we've talked about that on Comic Book Informer as well. So still read those a lot and support those people. But actual newsprint ones? No clue. And even then, a lot of the more popular newsprint comics also have a web presence. Yeah. Like, you know, you look at Foxtrot. It's still well, cranking you on the to. internet. You you would have to nowadays to be able to make a decent living at it, and uh, and then they can also, depending on what else they're working on, they can have some of their other stuff up too. So because just to do it in print, I mean, papers are being sold off and dying all over the world. So, mm-hmm. I mean, do and then the one part that I again really interested me here as well was that when they started talking about the licensing and how Watterson never licensed Calvin and Hobbes for any sort of merchandise and how they were comparing it to, you know, Garfield who is everywhere and peanuts with, you know, Snoopy selling you insurance. And 
just full disclosure, I never liked Peanuts. You never liked Peanuts? No. So many people say they related with Charlie Brown. I never did. I don't think that you can relate with Charlie Brown. It's just that the you still got so involved with the, the cast that you cared about them. But I don't think – I know personally I certainly never related to Charlie Brown. But, I mean, Peanuts was – Peanuts and, and – and, uh, and Calvin Hobbes, but Peanuts beforehand, obviously it came out before, but I was reading Peanuts from as young as I can remember, and the books too, because they had the books in the uh, the library as well. So in the same way that they talk about the Calvin Hobbes books in the kids' library as well, we had the Peanuts books in there. And I went to French school because I grew up in a small French community, and so a lot of the books that were in the library were, of course, French to try to encourage you to to read French and all that. Unfortunately, well, not unfortunately, but in my house, we mainly spoke English. We spoke some French, of course, and depending on with with whom, my uh, my mother spoke more French, but even she would speak more English with us. All that just to say, I still felt more comfortable reading and speaking English, and so it was hard to find reading material when you're a kid in the libraries and whatnot, but they had these peanuts. And yes, they had them in French as well, which never really made sense. But they also had the English ones. And so I would take those out and read them voraciously over and over and over again. And it was one of those things too, once you really had invested in the characters for a long period of time, some of those story arcs were so hysterical it was unbelievable so it's very surprising to hear you do I, know, it, I can't explain why it just never really clicked with me huh. but back to the the licensing thing and how they said you know waterson could have been a millionaire just selling stuffed hobbs dolls and how he just refused to do it and they got into the whole thing of you know artistic control that you know as long as it remained the comic strip he was the one in charge as soon as you license it you bring so many other people into your life and as we know that's Watterson wants as few people in his life as possible and they're talking about how you know the only way you can interact with Calvin and Hobbes is through the comic strip and then I'm thinking about how brilliant that is and how every time somebody sees Calvin and Hobbes for the first time in their life it's in the best way possible well not it's, just the best it's not way it's not some crappy animated adaptation or you know stuff laying around your grandma's house it's always as the comic strip as it was always meant to be exactly it's complete control over exactly how he wanted it to appear so for that you got to give him props the i think that a little bit like they were saying too a little bit of merchandising even if it was only a hobbs doll just nothing else just a hobbs doll (laughs) and it would have worked with what the strip is obviously to just have that one thing, but just have that and allow kids to have that in their lives as well. I think that that would have been, I mean, I don't want to see Calvin selling us insurance. That to me was when, when that happened with peanuts, it was like, wow, that's, that was terrible. But I mean, you could have a middle ground and I think that just the doll that would have been just brilliant and a nice, you know, nod to all of the younger readers and also adults who would buy it for their kids kind of thing to pass on that legacy. I really would have liked to have seen that. 
Yeah. Too bad. I've got my, my t-shirts that are <laughs> full disclosure. I have a few Calvin and Hobbes t-shirts, but they're, they're the one shot prints that sell for a day. So I have like Calvin <laughs> and Hobbes in a box that says serenity and it says aiming to misbehave. And, and then I have, uh, I have one too, where, because it's, it's based on their, either when they're sliding or when they're in the toboggan, I have one where it's Han and Chewbacca on the millennium Falcon. <laughs> Sliding around. So, too bad. He doesn't want to sell them. I'm going to buy those. <laughs> All right, let's move on to the last one we're going to tackle, which is yours, the imposter. This was riveting. Like, my God. <laughs> I, I was, it, for, for a documentary where I was pretty much at the edge of my seat, figuratively, I was laying on the couch. Come on now. But I, I'm blown away by just this story. And then the filmmaking on top of it was very well done. But this is a story of back in 97, a 23-year-old Frenchman by the name of Frederick Bourdain convinced a family in South Texas that he was their long-lost 16-year-old son. Without saying anything else, it's one of the craziest things I've ever heard of. I'm going to let you go on for a little bit before I give my thoughts. Okay. So it starts off in Europe and you get this, I'm assuming it, if it's not the actual phone call, it's a very good reproduction of the phone call with you know, these tourists found this poor little boy lost all alone. And it's actually narrated by Bourdain, which is hilarious to me that you know years later he's recounting what's going on in his life about how he basically lied and I don't even want to say cheated, just lied and tricked his way through so many agencies and authoritative people to get to this point where, you know, he convinced uh, they were in Spain when, when he was, quote, found and how he convinced the police that, you know, he was, yeah, he was this lost uh, American kid and how he eventually found somebody he could pretend to be and convinced the family that yes he was their their long lost son and at every step of the way he's telling all of the ways that this could have gone wrong and when he's saying like oh my god the sister is coming to pick me up she's going to know I'm not her brother and then as soon as she arrives she breaks down in tears runs over hugs him so happy to see her brother back you, you get the feeling that even he didn't expect things to happen the way they did and kind of just almost got lost along the way and just was going along with it. And then you get into this incredible psychological examination as to why this would happen, how this would happen. And that, you know, when the kid was 13, he ran away from home and was never seen again, alive or dead. So the family never got any sort of closure as to what happened to him. So psychologically, even the thought that, you know, your son, your brother is still alive, I can see how you would make assumptions just because you want it to be true so bad. And I, I, I'm just amazed by this story at every turn it takes. What's funny is uh, – actually, before we start, you know how all too often in a lot of our podcasts – you correct my pronunciation on things. Mm-hmm. You know how that comes up often? Yeah, it does. Bourdain. <laughs> That's what I said. No, it's not. No, it's not. Don't you pull that off. 
uh, if I had the time, I would find the times you've corrected me on other podcast, <laughs> other podcasts, and mock my pronunciation. That's not what you said. Anyway, I made an effort. Not even I, remotely. My mouth doesn't make those weird my noises <laughs> you folk use. And this is what's important. That's why I actually bring it up too, because an accent is. I mean, you can learn an accent, but if you have an accent and you're not even attempting to hide it and you were raised English, there, you know what's funny is that it's like that room 30, 237 where there's there's something wrong and it's kind of messing with your head and you're like, there's that unease of like what the hell and that's what this was because initially when you're watching it you have the impression which is what they're setting off to do that their son the son the boy was found in spain not that there's this imposter but that the boy is found and he was in spain and oh my god so when you're hearing then the narration and you're seeing Baudet who's speaking in quite obviously this thick French accent, you're kind of like, how how is this fitting in here? I, I, I'm I'm not quite getting it. Until it becomes apparent that, oh my God, he he passed himself off as this kid, and then they obviously they go into the details of how he came to choose that child and that was missing and whatnot, but. In the back of your head, you're always thinking his eyes are browned, <laughs> let alone that this was a little blonde kid. That I can actually deal with because if you look at old pictures of me when I was young, my hair was blonde. And part of that was it would get bleached white in the sun because we were always outside in the summertime. And so my hair was blonde in the, the, the pictures in, 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 high, in, in grade school and whatnot, but then it progressively got darker. Now, to be that much darker over the course of three years that he's missing, that's eh, really stretching it, but okay, I, you know what? I can actually deal with that. But his eyes were blue and Baudet's <laughs> eyes are brown and then there's a French accent. So, all of this is, like, as you're watching more and more it's not this like oh my god this is there's so much tension because oh he could be found out at any point it's a my god people smarten the hell up <laughs> like i know you're grieving and and you really want this to be true but you you can't you can't look at this person and say oh yeah this is 3 years later he would look like that it and speak like it just it makes no sense it makes these people look not just desperate which okay i can appreciate that but stupid and and the fbi and the <laughs> court agencies in spain and all of these children's agencies and all that you're going like come on like smart not people this 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 was not some mastermind who worked his way into the states and got a passport this was the stupidity and desperation of the masses that allowed it to happen. Yeah, I love when they're talking to the uh, female FBI agent that was uh, the primary contact on the case. And how when they brought Fred, 
<laughs> I'm not even going to try to go with the whole name now that you're going to mock me for it. <laughs> when they brought little Freddy in and he gave the story about how he was kidnapped and abused and they forced him to speak in French and he would be beaten if he spoke in English. And that's why he talked with the accent. <laughs> and they, they poured solution into his eyes because they didn't want blue eyes. And, and the FBI agent said, yeah, something seemed wrong with his story, but who would make up something that that terrible that horrifying and who am i to tell this woman that that's not her son like you're the fbi yeah, it's your job you yeah she didn't come off very good in this at all like she she tried to plead her case and make it seem like she did everything properly and it's just like at any step of the investigation you had to figure something was wrong and that's when like it became so fascinating of as Frederick continues to tell you know how he got by with all these things. Again, you can tell he didn't think he was going to get away with any of it. You know, it was it started off as just his scam to get a warm place to sleep for a week and a couple of hot meals, basically, and it devolved into this. And that's why my favorite character—I don't even character—it's a real person. My favorite person in this entire documentary is Charlie Parker, the private yeah. investigator who. The way he looks, the way he talks, the way he dresses, the car he drives, I swear he is straight out of a detective movie from 1976. And it was brilliant <laughs> that he's the guy that cracked this case because of investigative techniques he knows from Scotland Yard and how he's basically the smartest person in this story. Well, the fact that he tried to tell the FBI agent and she wouldn't listen to him about the ears and everything. And you're going like, come on, woman, how much do you need here before you smart up? Because again, she did not come off looking very intelligent in this at all. Now, I know that it's one of those where while you're looking at a documentary, it's easy for you to say that in hindsight, looking at no, he's speaking French. He's speaking in a French accent. <laughs> no amount of the government agency that kidnapped him, you know, beaten him for speaking French will make that make sense. None at all. And the eye color and everything, it's just. And it's only been, I, I say only, three years is a terribly long time for someone to lose a child. But in terms of how much a body changes during that time, it was just utter stupidity. And the fact that it got media attention and was on TV was just insane that they bought it. To the point of being on, it was on national TV too, wasn't it? Yeah, I think they actually showed a clip they from did. the interview from like the Today Show or something. I can't remember which show it was, but it was a national show. And and yeah, like I'm thinking, oh my God, what the hell? <laughs> and, and that's when they start getting into the, the darker theories of, you know, maybe the family knew it wasn't their son and they were, you know, going along with it to, to cover up you know, the murder of the actual kid. And it, you're like, well, you know, that's, you know, you don't have any proof for that, but honestly, it's the only the thing only that thing, makes yeah. sense at yeah. the end of the day. <laughs> and, but what's so great about this documentary is like Frederick is just naturally, he's a very charismatic guy as he's narrating this film. Like I'm kind of liking him. And 
you look at the the story he's telling and you're like well why would the spanish police leave him alone in the office and this and that and what a lot of this stuff doesn't make sense and like at the end of the movie it occurred to me well the only thing we have to go on is his word yeah (laughs) who are we the viewers to know if he's even telling us the truth to begin with about anything (laughs) and how he gave that that great story of you know the reason why you know he this guy obviously had psychological issues of his own and you know need to belong and this and that as evidenced by the fact that after he was arrested he made how many phone calls to other families yeah, a ton uh, it was over 100 was it not it was it was definitely well into the triple digits yes so obviously he had his own issues that he was working through at this point in his life but he told this touching story about you know his her, his mother ended up getting pregnant by an Algerian and, you know, his French grandfather wasn't going to have any of that. And so when he was born, he was raised, he was an outcast in his own family. And you're like, oh, my God, I feel so bad for this. Wait a minute. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're not telling the truth, are you? <laughs> but even like, just talking to us in the documentary, like he was winning me over as the viewer until, you know, common sense clicked in finally. But it was... Like, I can see how at least parts of his stories, he can get you to believe because he's damn good at what he does. And the thing, too, is, well, he's a sociopath. I mean, he does not care about anybody but himself. He point blank says it. And to think of what he did here, I'm not even talking about the 100, I think it was 130 or 103 it seems to me calls after two families telling him that he had information or found their child and things like that. Not even thinking of that because that's twisted it beyond reason, but to think of what he put this family through to tell them that he was their child, that who is quite obviously must be, must have died at who knows how, but I mean to put them through that, like, that's just sick and he doesn't care so he sells off so much of this because what would hold us off as you know rational thinking human beings with empathy doesn't hold him back at all that that's a springboard for him <laughs> to launch into <laughs> other lies and everything else so and and i love that they actually interviewed him. So you're seeing him on the screen and you can again, and it was really well edited too, because you'd see the family making a little comment and then they cut to him and he's got this wry smile on his lips of, yeah, I fooled him. I don't give a damn. And it was like, Oh my God. Yeah. And this is where a lot of the, the filmmaking techniques in the documentary really enhanced the story because there was a lot of this done through you know recreations where they had actors portraying the various people involved and how it starts off and as they keep going back to especially that that early point of the story where he's found by the spanish police and they keep retelling that point a couple of times and each time you realize that it's the actor portraying frederick is the spanish policeman 
the actor portraying Frederick is the tourist who called in the police call to begin with. And that's where the filmmaking starts unraveling the layers of just how deep the deception goes. And that is really what enhanced the overall story. And I give all uh, credit to the filmmaker. Uh, Bart Layton was the director of this for putting together a very good film. And when you've seen the cutscenes as um, Baudet is actually speaking and then it cuts to the younger self who is when he's saying like, and I said, or something along those lines, and then the young Baudet mouths, but you're still hearing the voice of the actual Baudet. It, it's just this seamless kind of transition that creates this kind of like a little bit jarring effect, but freaking cool as shit. So yeah, the, the, the filming in this was, was, it was phenomenal. And, and again, going back to like how, how this could happen. It was funny because periodically, because again, I watched this with my, actually I watched it with my wife and my son and, um, my wife would, because we'd be going like, how in the hell are they still falling for this? And my wife would say, well, you know, Spain is on the other side of the country. Because at the very beginning, I don't know if you caught this, but the yes, sister. Yes, I caught that. The sister gets the, says she got the call and he's in Spain and she's like, what? Isn't that clear across the country? <laughs> what am I looking at here? So whenever there'd be one of those, like, how are they still falling for this? Well, you know, Spain is clear across the country. <laughs> yeah, th- there's also definitely a commentary here as to the general uh, social welfare of certain parts of America. Yeah. Anyways, very, very good documentary. And it is truly gripping to the end exceptionally well filmed this is one of those that i would say definitely watch if you like watching kind of crime tv shows as well kind of thing you like that that kind of story this is right up your alley very very well done okay before we leave there is another one that we're not going to take a lot of time but just briefly to give our thoughts on it's blackfish this is actually one that you told me to watch. You, well, you didn't tell me to watch. You said maybe this would be one that you would want to choose for this episode, but you weren't positive. And I just went ahead and watched it after I read what it was about. And it was disturbing. It was. And I actually think that people should watch it because of that. And I'll let you go into what it's about. We're not going to spend a lot of time at all on this because we're running long already. But just briefly, just so that we can let folks know about it. And, and I mean, I, I think it's a people should watch this. All right. So Blackfish centers around the uh, whales that are in captivity at SeaWorld. And specifically, they focus on one whale, Tilikum, who over the course of his captivity – uh, was responsible for the death of two of his trainers and probably one hobo. <laughs> and it, it just, it really goes into the treatment and how the whales are being handled. And it, it, it's very interesting for me because I have been to Orlando SeaWorld, or SeaWorld, God, I can't even tell you how many times. We went, used to go up to Orlando several times a year when I was younger, mostly for Disney, but occasionally we would make trips to SeaWorld as well. So I've seen the whales, I've seen the shows, and it's, you know, it's a sight to behold. You know, seeing this 2,000-pound animal sailing through the air is fascinating. 
And especially as a kid, come on, that's friggin' mind blowing. And it's interesting because it doesn't go so far as to say the whales are mistreated per se, but rather they're not being treated properly. And there's, there's definitely a, a big gray area in there where obviously these gigantic, majestic social creatures were never meant to be kept in these small pens and away from their larger families. And just how psychologically that has to mess with the whale and that has to be a contributing factor in all this aggression that has been shown from them over the years. Again, there's... It, it's kind of hard to describe just how disturbing I found this. Um, we have a similar it's, – it's called Marine Land in Niagara Falls, although I haven't been to it for years, so I don't know what the setup is now. But I remember when I was young going to it and seeing same kind of shows and whatnot. And it's one of those things where, yeah, you're, you're amazed by it. But it's not until you're younger that you – or older, I should say, that you, you start thinking, this can't be right. Like they, they deserve to be – in larger open waters because they, they look at the size of them they, they shouldn't be held in little you know aquariums essentially it doesn't make sense and this really kind of shows you all that it shows you how devastating it was for Tilikum when he was actually in Victoria at the Sea World or whatever it was called um, out there and I mean, it's it's really freaking disturbing what you see and how they're treated. What I, I especially liked is how they talked about the whales early on to give you some information about them. And the fact that they actually have more emotions than we do. Not mm-hmm. only are they sentient they actually and, and social. Because they have their families, but they actually, the part of their brains that are in charge of emotion is bigger than ours. And look at what we're doing to them. And when they showed, I can't remember what her name, the female's mother's name was, but when they took her child away and she just stayed in a corner and screamed, your your heart drops. It's just so... Oh my God! <laughs> yeah. So this is yeah. We're we're not going to go into any further detail on this one. It was just one of those that I watched. It blew me away, and I it's it's fairly highly reviewed. This one too. It's rated actually at eighty three percent. It's it's one of those that I think people should watch. Not because it's going to be gripping and everything. It is very interesting, but just so that you can appreciate what we're doing to these animals. And I don't want to become some, you know, big advocate of animal rights. That's not what I'm trying to do. I'm just saying like, this is fairly important. You should definitely watch. This is good. Yeah. Although I, I feel it has to be said that as with any opinionated documentary, you really are only seeing one side of the discussion. And that's not to say that, you know, they're being untruthful or, or there's, you know, some hidden truth that they're, they're, they're obscuring. But I, I again, because I've, I've been around, you know, SeaWorld so many times, there is a lot of good that SeaWorld does in the world as well. So just kind of compare what you know with what's being presented here and draw your own conclusions is what yeah. I'll say. Yeah. 
So, so there you go. Some new documentaries. If you are not the type of person who typically watches them, I hope that this kind of opens up your eyes to some of what you can see out there. And there are a lot more. Stop on to the little channel for documentaries on Netflix. They have a ton there and you're bound to find something that interests you. And a lot of them are damn good. And some of them, you might not think it, but they're just interesting to watch for fun. Like we watched um, Craigslist Joe not that long ago. Crazy, stupid, fun, but it was. It was really enjoyable just to see this journey that this guy went on. And a lot of them were like that. I watched a great one about Ray Harryhausen the other night. Right. Cool. So, yeah, make sure to stop and check them out. Also, stop by the site at popcornronin.com. Leave us some comments. Let us know what you think. And with that, we will talk to you in a couple of weeks. TV and anime reviews, please make sure to stop by popcornronin.com and leave the guys your thoughts in the comments. If you'd like to hear more from Roger and Vince, check out their comic book informer podcast and Internet Dragons TV gaming videos. And lastly, thanks to Manelli Jamal for the show's theme music. We encourage everyone to check out his site, manellijamal.com, or find him on iTunes and help support this incredible musician by picking up his CDs. Mm-hmm.